Welcome to Soaring the Sky, Glider Pilots Podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host. This is episode 29. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. Today on the podcast, Jim Zimbakis joins us. After a flight with a friend in his Super Decathlon and about four or five aerobatic flights with him, Jim was hooked. He started taking training soon after in Frederick, Maryland, where he obtained his private pilot single-engine license. After a lot of $100 hamburger runs and taking friends on an occasional flight, life got busy with two children and a busy consulting career that included a lot of traveling. Jim started flying a lot less, and it wasn't until when he was driving home in Florida that he spotted a glider and followed it to where it landed at Zephyr Hills. Jim there took his first glider flight, and again he was hooked. He received his glider add-on rating in July of 2016, and then purchased his own glider in February of 2017, a Jantar II. Now Jim has already put approximately 200 hours in that glider. He also has obtained his silver badge in April 2018, Today we join Jim flying his first competition right now on Soaring the Sky. Jim Zambakis, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you today. How are you? Very good. Good. Glad to be here. When did your aviation adventure get started? I got my power license way back. I think it was in 80, 85, 1985. I got my power license, thought I was going to continue on forever and ever. And, and uh, I flew for about 10 years in power. And as it happens, life gets in the way. I had some children and, and I stopped flying for, for a good number of years, probably about uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, got out of aviation altogether. I was traveling quite a bit with work and, and just didn't have time for it. And uh, about three or four years ago, I, was, uh, I lived down here in Tampa, Florida, and I was driving down the road and actually saw a glider in the air. And I was just on a mission to find out where, you know, where the where the glider was coming from. And I, I was able to find uh, Tampa Bay Soaring, which is at Zephyr Hills uh, Airport in, uh, in here in, in central Florida. And and that kind of started my glider career. I, I, I went up for a ride uh, one day and immediately was hooked. And uh, that was about three years ago. And uh, here I am going stronger and stronger. It's become a become a full addiction for me. I can uh, definitely understand that one <laughs> yep yep so where did your journey take you you started taking soaring lessons and how did that go oh uh, it went great uh you know again i hadn't been in a in an aircraft uh piloting an aircraft in, in 10 or 15 years uh got in a, a glider uh it was a grove 103 i think for my uh, orientation ride and and I think as most people get into gliders, they, they immediately realize the rudder actually does something in a glider yeah. <laughs> uh, versus, versus a power plane. So that was my first recollection of, you know, wow, that, that pedal, those pedals are actually necessary uh, in a glider. And it just kind of got my interest. And, you know, you really have to, you have to fly the, you know, you have to fly the aircraft. It requires a lot more coordination and, and focus, I, I feel, than even in, in some of the power aircraft. But uh just got hooked. I, I got my, uh, I soloed. I, I, I couldn't tell you. It seemed like it was, it was fairly quick and, uh, just, just couldn't get enough flying. I, uh, 
you know, very quickly uh, got my hours and, and did my check ride and, and uh, got my uh, uh, glider added to my license, private glider. And, uh, you know, I was off to the races. I, I tried to fly every aircraft we we had at the club, you know, just get as many hours as I could, as, as quick as I could. In, in hindsight, it was probably <laughs> too soon, but but about six months after I got my license, I uh, was on wings and wheels, like most of us do on the weekend, and I ran across a uh, Jontar. It's a 1980 Jontar II, which is a, a, a beautiful uh, Polish single-seater uh, fiberglass glider, and and uh, just fell in love with it from the pictures. And a few weeks later, it was uh, it was being delivered down here to Florida for me. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So how how did that go? Was it ready to go, or did you have to get the annual on it? Uh, I forget. I, I think I did have to get an annual. I think it had just expired when I when I bought it. I, I I'd had a lot of conversations with uh, the gentleman I bought it from up in Ohio. He he sent me hundreds of pictures. Really well maintained uh, aircraft and more more of a formality. I think we did an annual here just to you know look under the covers and make sure everything was was good with the glider and. Uh, I did ask my uh, flight instructor, my original flight instructor, if he wouldn't mind taking it up on its maiden flight, thinking he he knows how I fly and he you know he had an idea of what I what I do right and what I do wrong and uh, he fell in love with the glider. Uh, he, I think he thought it was more uh, more of a sporty aircraft than uh, than he was expecting. It, it's a it's a nice fast airplane and uh, that I just immediately I, I couldn't you know I, he he gave me a felt like about an hour long uh, uh, cockpit check out in the aircraft but it's probably only a minute or so i was just so anxious to, to take it up and i think on my first flight in that glider i probably was up for two hours just just horsing around the airport filling it out so was there a big transition from that from what you're used to flying or did it was it pretty easy uh amazingly easy um i i joke around with other members at uh at, at my field that I, <laughs> it's in my opinion is extremely docile uh high performance glider and I'm not sure why there's not more of them here in the country than there are, but it's a, I joke around and say it's a, it's a very fast planning. Um, it, it, it's just a good, fast airplane with very, really no bad uh, flying qualities. Uh, stalls straight ahead. It, it gives you plenty of warning uh, if you're, you know, if you're getting into a, a slow situation. And it's, and it's a very solid, heavy aircraft. So I, I really feel like it, it's a good aircraft to, to, you know, to learn your, your take, take on as your first high performance because it, it can take a lot of abuse. It's a very it seems to be a very rugged, uh, strong built aircraft. It sounds like a nice, safe glider. Yep, I really love it. So you bought a glider and you're ready to go. Where did you go from there? Just a lot of flying. I, again, I'm. Um, it, I, I joked around with you and said it's it's become a full fledged addiction now. I, I if I'm not flying, I'm thinking about the next time. Uh, you know, the next weekend or the next nice day that that's up coming up where I can fly. So I just started to rack up hours. I think I did about 70 hours uh, in the aircraft the first the first year that I owned it and really almost immediately as soon as I got the glider started to get interested in cross country not 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 necessarily racing but you know just pushing further and further trying to get further and further away from the airport and uh, you, you know learning to test your skills and your and your courage as, as you get away from the airport a lot a lot of the members where I fly uh, cross country is just not a high priority uh, we have I believe it's six club aircraft and we we don't encourage people to go cross country unless you know unless you have somebody experience with you uh in the aircraft so i really got a kick out of just jumping in the glider and going uh going away as long as i could you know as far away as i could 
What's the glide ratio on that? Um, <laughs> the the book says it's forty to one. I have to believe it. I, I think I want. I have an OD that I I fly with. Um, it seems to to capture it at about thirty eight uh, or so to one, but it's it's plenty. So there's a, another member. There's actually two members uh, that I fly with. Uh, one gentleman named uh, Bruce Patton and uh, another member named Randy Morningstar. And we all three of us kind of have the same. Uh, inclination. We, I think we all enjoyed uh, the, the challenges of cross-country flight and getting away further from the airport. And, and uh, it, it just naturally turned into, okay, once you're comfortable flying longer distances, then it becomes, well, how, you know, how can I do it faster? How can I go further, uh, fly faster so that you can go further and still make it back to the airport? And that's, those, those two guys have really helped keep that energy alive in me also with, uh, with pursuing that, that type of flying. So recently, you flew a competition, correct? That's right. First, uh, first competition, and then again, it was the three of us, uh, Randy, Bruce, and myself, signed up for this. It was the Region Five uh, South. It was in Cordial, Georgia. Uh, I just blanked out. I think it's the first week in June of this year. So, how did that go? Walk me through it. You show up. <laughs> you bring. You bring your glider. Yeah, Obviously. we we had no idea what to expect. We went there completely uh, naive to what was expected or what was required. We did we did actually meet with a gentleman named Rich Owen, who uh, is based out of uh, Seminole Lakes. He's a I think he's actually won a national competition uh, here in the U.S. just a few years ago. But he he did come to our club and give us about a about a two hour presentation on the process, you know, what to expect at the races and how they're organized and, you know, how the, the different days and scoring and so on. So we, so we did have a, you know, we had a, if you will, a textbook understanding of what to expect, but none of us had ever done this before. So you, you show up, you know, not really knowing what, you know, how serious people take this or how, how aggressive everyone's going to be at these, at these races. But it was a, it was a really neat uh, experience for sure. So can you set up the terrain for me? Were there mountainous areas? Was it mostly flat? What was the terrain there in Georgia? Very flat. Very flat. Uh, there are the particular area. I'm not even sure if you would call this uh, eastern Georgia, but it, it it's very flat area. Um, farmland, a lot of car- cotton fields, uh, just very wide open spaces. And, and there are some areas that are uh, uh, have lakes. So there are some some water areas that you you know you learn to avoid out there the the biggest difference you know same same terrain if you will down here in florida the biggest difference and i don't know if it was just uh the the time of the year that we were up there but the skies were the the cloud bases were double of what they are down here in florida um it it was very common uh not to get into the cloud bases until eight thousand feet uh out there okay yeah, we're down here in, in central Florida, 4,000 feet is pretty much the norm. That was a complete learning curve for me because you're not used to actually having to climb that high to get, you know, to get into that band, that top band. How big was the contest, I guess, as far as distance? How did that work? How many turn points? How far? They how were, was that set up? Okay, so they were, it was a six-day contest, if I remember right. Uh, the last two days or three days actually got rained out but it was i believe scheduled to be a six-day contest uh rich owen i mentioned earlier uh he, he actually was a contest director for this uh, for this event he did a great job uh picking the task so i was part of the uh sports class randy bruce and myself were part of the sports class 
uh, being our first, you know, our first entry into, into a contest. And I, I want to say when the weather was good, which it was most of the time, it was extremely hot, but the weather was, was very good for storing uh, most of the days that we were there. Those, those tasks were, I, I think, 160 miles is probably a good you know, a good average for, for the days that we flew, uh, for the, for the nominal, uh, you know, average differences. I think some of them, you, you could have gone over 200 miles if you, uh, if you flew all the way to the, you know, to the outside perimeter of each of the, uh, turn points. Oh, that's a lot of flying. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially the, the type of training we were doing back here in Florida, I want to say the largest, uh, task that we flew was maybe 80 miles. So it was night and day. I remember looking at the uh, contest sheet the first time it came out, and I said, you know, I've never flown. I've never flown that kind of distance. Uh, I, I did have my silver badge, and I think I think I might have just done a hundred and you know a hundred and forty or hundred fifty miles that day on on the silver badge. I did all three pieces, but I've never flown you know as long as we flew as far as we flew and, and definitely have never flown it uh trying to be fast you know over that big a distance so that was a that was a real shock or a real eye opener when i when i saw that the first time so it's the first day um you all are getting in the gliders you, you're going to start the race how did that go your dry mouth because everything's happening fast there were um let, let's say there were roughly 30 gliders at the contest so i think there were many more uh, gliders there than they they typically get and uh, just in the sports class alone I, I I think there were roughly 20 gliders in in that class so they would hand out uh, we would have a pilots meeting in the morning uh, 10 in the morning they would go through weather briefings safety you know safety discussions uh, talk about how we're going to grid where we're going to grid uh, you know things like that and we would uh, I, we would start to grid around noon and I, I mentioned to you it was it was abnormally hot it was it was approaching 100 degrees uh, every day that we were there so you wanted to spend as little time sitting on the ground in your glider so you know generally we would we would grid all the gliders uh, either on the side of the runway or actually on the runway and you know just before your your cycle came up to where they started launching you would you know you strap yourself in and, and just try and stay as cool as you could until uh until they hooked you up and uh, and started to tow. And we had, uh, on some of the days, we actually had five tow planes uh, launching. So there, there was just rapid succession launches. Everything happened real fast. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how did that first day go once you got in the air? Amazing. I mean, it was it was very exhilarating. Number one, just to be in the air with that, that many gliders. Um, again, back back home, there might be three of us flying together, you know, practicing for a task. And I, and I, I want to say half the time we would lose sight of each other. You know, it was very hard to to keep a group together. And then when you launch at this contest, you, you know, you're, you're surrounded by gliders and it's just, just a different experience. But uh, again, we, uh, we, we had actually come up a few days before the contest uh, to do some practice flying. The one of the GTA races was actually going on at the airport uh, the week before. So we, so we had an opportunity to practice and, and get used to the, the clouds and the weather and so on in the area. So, you know, the, the first day was, was kind of, you're just heads down focused on getting to that, to that first turn point, you know, as soon as you left the, uh, the start cylinder, um, it was, it was all kind of a, you, you just become very focused on, you know, getting to that next cloud or to where you thought the next area of lift was and, and trying to keep your speed up as, you know, as best you can. How were the thermals that day? They were not great 
uh, early in that we we launched. Let, let's say we launched around one o'clock, or we we started the race around one o'clock. I I do remember they were they weren't as good as they were the few days before that that we had been there. But uh, so you you felt I, I, maybe it was psychologically because I I know I want to not spend too much time thermaling and. You know, I want to start getting downrange towards the first turn point. And the thermals weren't quite as strong. They were somewhere plus twos to plus fours. But you were able to get up high. And that, as you know, that that takes a lot of stress out of uh, out of out of the situation that, you know, you always feel comfortable when you're at 4,000, 5,000 feet. You feel like you can oh, go yeah. anywhere. And and that helped. And then as the day progressed, the, the thermals picked up uh, significantly. They they were they were all plus four to plus eight i mean some of them were extremely strong yeah so you're good to go once the afternoon kind of yeah kicked in. exactly and you know you're you're pretty far away from where you started so it's uh i, I guess the biggest difference for me there was that I, I know when i was back home you always have in the back of your mind you know you know the area pretty well and you kind of can visual you know visualize i'm this far from home and, you know, if I land out here, this is where, you know, somebody can come get me, whether they, they fly you out or, or have to trail you out. When when you're in a foreign area, a foreign location, I noticed I didn't think about what was behind me. I didn't think about how far I was from Cordial Airport. I just focused on how far I was from that, that next turn point. So that was probably the biggest uh, psychological difference for me was I wasn't, it dawned on me about halfway through the first race that I wasn't at all focused on how far I was from home. It was, you know, am I on schedule? Am I doing this at the right pace? You know, thinking about getting to the next turn point, looking at the clouds, uh, you know, anything you could, you could find that would help you, uh, you know, find the most direct uh, route to those next turn points. Do you know what your average speed was that day? That day, some people listening to this may laugh, but that, that day was good for me and and for the other guys uh that were flying we were we were probably flying in the mid 40 uh, mile an hour 45 46 mile an hour obviously some of the contestants there fly much faster but for for us when we were practicing you know we were we were probably flying in the 42 you know 40 to 42 mile an hour average across a, a task so i was kind of surprised that the speed had gone up and and, and again considering what a long task these were that our speeds held up, you know, they were, they were actually a little better than we had, we had done uh, up to that point. And I think the guys that won that day were, were averaging just, just over 50 miles an hour or maybe just, just below 50. Um, so we weren't, you know, we, it wasn't like we were, you know, they were laughing at us and we, we couldn't keep up with the, with the pack, but it was a, it was a, a good fun day. And obviously for those people that don't know, your speed is, you know, calculated not only, of course, when you're traveling, but you have to calculate when you're in a thermal and you're at zero, basically when you're in a thermal, cause you're not exactly. going anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. You, the, the actual flight speeds, I, I can speak for myself. I was, I was trying to fly anywhere between 70 and, and 80 knots. Uh, in the aircraft whenever I wasn't thermaling. I, I was trying to get to that next thermal at about that speed. I, I must have been doing something right because I, I found myself catching up with some of the gaggles that I hadn't flown with yet. So I'd, I'd you know, I'd be making my way to a cloud and as you got closer, you, you'd look up and sure enough, there were there were three or four gliders already there, you know, circling. So that, that kind of gave you a good feel that you were you were doing something right, uh, that you yeah. were staying, staying with some of the, some of the in, in this case, some very high performance gliders. So it was a it was a nice nice comforting feeling that you weren't completely out of the uh, out of the picture for the for the race. Now, did they do any handicaps for the gliders, or was it more of like you said they put you in a sport category? 
Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the sport category, uh, I'm not quite sure even what that classification means because there were, there were, I think there was an 18 meter ship in there. There were definitely some higher performance, uh, modern ships, you know, AS, uh, uh, 27s and I think even a 29. So I'm not sure <laughs> what the, you know, what the boundaries are to be, to be eligible to be in the sports class. But there was a broad, broad range. I'm, I'm in a, a 40-year-old uh, Jantar. We had one of our other members was in a Grove 104, a speed steer. Another member was in a, uh, uh, he was in another fairly high-performance glider. So, you know, there was just a broad, broad range. And then the handicap uh, obviously played uh, into that uh, for each of the gliders. So that first day, did everybody make it back? Was there anybody that had to land out? Uh, not there were, as I recall, I think there were two people out of, let, let's say there were 20 again in the sports class. I think there were two that landed out very early. I, I mentioned the the lift was not really strong in the beginning. So I think there were two that, that landed out by the first turn point. And then uh, other than that, it was just, again, it was how fast you could make it around, you know, around the uh, course. It was, uh, I don't remember the exact distance, but I know there were three, uh, three turn points and, uh, we did have a, uh, for safety reasons, we did have a uh, uh, minimum altitude uh, coming back to the to the Cordial Airport. I think at four miles, I think you had to be at, I don't recall the exact numbers, but it was something along the lines of you had to be at 1,800 feet, uh, four miles from the uh, from the airport as you're coming back. And I think that caused some of the some of the guys that were racing back. I think that caused some problems there where they. They had to stop and circle to get a little bit higher so that they could cross the uh, the finish cylinder uh, at a high enough altitude. How did you finish up that first day? <laughs> I did amazingly well. I believe I came in seventh that day. Nice. And, and yeah, I totally. I just was my goal that day was to finish, uh, not land yeah, exactly. out. Finish. That, that, I was I was thrilled to finish. I should have looked at this before we we talked, but I believe I came in seventh that day and the race director actually wrote something very interesting in the, they do a daily uh, recap. The problem I had was I actually got back 10 or, or, or 12 minutes uh, early for the task. So there's a minimum time allowed for each task. And I think as I was making it back close to the airport, I just got excited that I was going to complete uh, the race. And I, I think I just, I didn't, I didn't know I didn't know how to pace myself and, and say, you know, how do I get back slower? Uh, I, I knew I was under the time limit, but I thought I was, I thought it wouldn't make that big a difference. But the race director wrote something interesting at the end of the day that had I, had I stayed out, you know, at my current speed and actually stayed out those additional 12 minutes, I would have came in third place that day. Uh, oh, nice. Um, my first contest. I was I was just blown away with with that. So that was a that was a very exciting uh, way to to do your first uh, your first day of contest flying. So you had a couple more days after that. Yes, we had uh, four more days. So as as fun as the first day was, you know, then I'm now I'm really psyched. Uh, the second day comes around. Very similar weather. Extremely hot. Uh, the uh, it was a little more blue that day, or the the clouds were definitely spaced out much further, but they were very high. I think the ceilings that day were uh, at some point were over eight thousand feet. So I go into the second day with a real, you know, a lot of energy because I'm like, wow, I did so well the first day. I'm gonna I'm gonna win this day. And uh, 
it started out great. I again, it was it was fairly blue, and I remember leaving the uh, the start cylinder, and all I could see was nothing. It was just blue all the way to the first turn point, which was not that far away. It was about it was probably about 20 miles uh, from the start cylinder. But I remember going, you know, I've never flown 20 miles out into the blue. I got lucky. I, I think I ran into uh, some lift. Just I, I did literally run into it. There, I, I didn't. I wasn't looking for it. I just ran into it. Just kind of nursed it, and it, it seemed to be a very weak lift line. I wasn't coming down. I basically was probably, you know, gaining 50 feet a minute. Um, but I was able to fly straight ahead. I didn't have to stop in thermal. And if I felt like I was coming out of that line, I would nudge my direction, you know, to the right or to the left until it felt like I was back in it. And and amazingly, I I flew that first leg, I think, with I don't think I stopped the thermal at all. Just a very interesting way to start the day. And it really got me got me pumped up. And, and matter of fact, in, in, in that first leg, there there were no gliders in front of me. I got to the first turn point and looked around and there were some nice clouds there and I looked around and, and there were no gliders. So I felt like either I had, they had just left me sitting in the dust or I was doing really well. And then the, uh, the next turn point was a good ways away. I think it was another 20 or 30 miles to the next turn point. And I did happen to pick up some other, other gliders and made it much more comfortable for me anyways, uh, just being in the vicinity of some other gliders. And if, you know, if you were having trouble finding some strong lift, somebody else was finding it and, you know, you, you all kind of play off each other. And then the, the most, uh, the biggest thing that stands out, well, there's two things that stand out to that day. So the, the, the third turn point, and again, I don't remember the exact distance, but it was in, it was in excess of 60 miles from, uh, the second to the third turn point. And that's, you know, I've, that, that's just a long straight distance. And I, I do remember when I got the contest sheet or the task sheet that day, I, I'm like, that's insane. I've never, you know, I've never flown 60 miles straight to a, to another turn point. The really exciting thing for me was I, I, I got up very high. I think it was probably averaging around 7,000 feet. Um, oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. And, and the clouds at that point were even much higher than that. They were, they were above 8,000. I just didn't want to waste the time thermaling up up to that altitude for speed reasons just you know like you said when you're thermaling you you got a big zero for for uh airspeed so uh you, you try and you know minimize that but on the uh on the third leg i remember number one i was afraid because it was 60 miles going away from it felt like it was going somewhat away from the airport still at that point and uh the one thing i remember is i i went very deep into the second uh turn point so that i could pick up a, a very long uh cloud street that i saw that was heading generally in the direction from the from the second turn point to the third i went out of my way if you will i flew perpendicular to the to the course i needed but i was able to get into that cloud street and and the the big thing that i remember on that leg was that i only had to stop in thermal once I was able to uh, stay into cloud suck, if you will, but I was able to stay in close to the clouds and, and generally was finding pockets of lift where I would just slow down enough to stay in it as long as I could, not turn, you know, not thermal. I think I had gone about 40 miles uh, doing that without having to stop in thermal on that course until about the last the last 20 miles. There I 
there was a little stretch of blue sky and I did stop and get some altitude back to the third turn point. So that was a big, I was, <laughs> I was happy again to, to have done that, you know, with as little thermaling as I could uh, coming across. Yeah. Just keep on rolling. Right. So, so the day's going perfect. And as a matter of fact, my speed was averaging over, I think I was at 50, 52 or 54 miles an hour uh, on my OD uh, for the task speed. So I was really really pumped up. This is going to be a great day. You know, I'm really going to do well. The final turn point heading home, I think it was 20 to 30 miles. I don't, again, don't recall the exact distance, but this is where things went bad. Um, it was later in the afternoon, later in the day. My OD, I, w- I had already turned uh, to head home. My OD had told me that I had final glide made. So I'm very excited. And I was at about 6,000 feet. So I started to to push the nose down and I'm, you know, I'm just going as fast as, as I felt comfortable in the glider. But I noticed that my arrival altitude was falling off abnormally fast. And, and I, I, I even thought something was wrong with the glider. I thought maybe my gear had opened. That had happened once uh, when we were practicing. And it wasn't until I got about 10 miles from, from the third turn point that I realized my I misread my OD. It was calculating final glide to the third turn point, not to the final, not to the Cordial Airport. Uh, oh. And I was still at, I was still at, I was above 4,000 feet. I wasn't immediately concerned. And the lift had been so strong that day. I said, well you know, slow down a little bit. And, and there were plenty of clouds out in front of me. And, and I said, you've, there's been lift everywhere. You'll find something. I, you know, I didn't have final glide made to the Cordial airport, but I was very confident and I, I wasn't really at all concerned that I would find, uh, find some lift and, and make it back home. <laughs> um, another 10 miles go by and I, I did find small lift, but nothing, you know, nothing worth stopping for. And long story short, I was about uh, six miles from the airport when I knew I wasn't going to make it. If I just flew straight ahead, I wasn't going to make it to the airport. So I really had to do some soul searching. And uh, I, I did try and find, you know, looking at the ground, I found some small clusters of houses. I, you know, I looked for things. I was probably down to 2,000 feet at that point. And I did get within uh, several miles of the airport. I think I was down to about three miles to the airport now. But there was a long uh, group of trees between me and the airport probably about a mile wide uh, swath of trees. And I knew I, I, number one, I knew that was not the smart move was to try and make it over the trees and, you know, and squeak out a landing right at the airport. So I did stop and, and just look for any lift that I could. And I think I got down to probably, I was flying over a, a field that I had picked out to land out. And it was a, a fairly empty uh, cotton field that had just been planted. Uh, th- th- it was, it was sprouting. There were maybe six inch plants in that field. I knew that, you know, if, if I couldn't find anything, that was where I was going to land. Very wide open field, very flat. Um, and I looked and looked and looked. And, and it was frustrating because I could see the airport uh, in the distance, but I just couldn't get enough enough lift to where I felt comfortable making that dash uh, over the trees. And uh, long story short, call, I was able to contact the uh, race director and said, I'm, I'm three miles away. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, he probably could see me, to be frank with you. And uh, told him I was going to land out. And that's that's what happened. Uh, so I landed out. And it was really, really tough for me because I had had such a good day going that day. And other than the, the mental mistake of, of mis, you know, misreading or misunderstanding uh, my computer, I really had a great day, day going. I, I didn't feel like I was 
being too aggressive. I was just flying the wrong, uh, the wrong speed, you know, given the information that it was telling me, I, I should have slowed down and, uh, and figured out that it hadn't moved on to the next turn point yet. So had you landed out before? Uh, yeah, not, uh, not, not in an open field. I've back in Florida, I've landed out two or three times. Uh, but it's always been at some predetermined, uh, airfield, uh, airport of some sort. I, I've landed once at a, at a, uh, a paved runway, which was one of my land out, you know, that was one of my turn points. And I knew if, uh, you know, if I couldn't get past that point, that was going to be my, my go-to place to, to land out. And I've done that. I've landed out at a grass, two different grass airports, uh, in, in the, in the area here. So, Again, it you know there's not a lot different other than you know obviously you're 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 looking for obstructions a lot more than than you might uh, you know when you go to areas that you know you know the areas that you know you're going to land out and are, are airfields to begin with they're a little safer. Um, the the biggest surprise uh, and and we had been warned about this but the uh, the ground there um, is extremely sandy so it, from from the air it almost looks like sand. Uh, colored and that's again they they grow uh, cotton in that area and it was very flat it was a, a I, I want to say it was several hundred acres that I was landing into a flat ground and you can see the the plant rows that they were planted so I knew I was coming in you know with with the 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 rows of crop not you know not against it so I wasn't worried about uh, running into any mounds you know as I was as I was coming down but the instant I touched down it was like, I felt like a lawn dart. Uh, as soon as the, the landing gear touched that soil, the, the glider just came to a stop instantly. It, it felt like it rolled five feet. Oh, my. And, you know, just what you'd expect. You just kicked up all this dust, you know, over the nose of the glider. Um, you know, so that was a big shock. And, and, and I, if anything, I touched down probably more soft than I usually do. You know, one of my better landings. Um, and I, and I did actually land right in between two of the, two of the plant rows. So I, you know, I was, I was cognizant of not trying not to damage <laughs> the crops as I came in. So I, at least I had landed where I had planned and I, I stayed out of the direct contact with the crops. But, but again, as soon as you're, I don't know if it was my gear or even my gear doors. Uh, but as soon as I touched down, it, it just felt like it stopped instantly, but, uh, got out of the glider, you know, no damage to the glider, no, no damage to me. Uh, I did, I still had radio contact with, uh, with the home, uh, home field. So I was able to give them my, well, they saw me, I think I was close enough to the airport. They probably saw where I had, uh, I had chosen to land out two of the members that I was there with actually grabbed my trailer and, and, uh, it, it wasn't a, a place where they could have flown me out of it. So they came out in the trailer and, uh, I won't go into a lot of detail, but it, it was a much harder task to get the glider out of that field than, uh, than we had anticipated it was it was later in the day it was extremely hot i was tired they were tired you know i think i was even dehydrated from uh you know from the flight the time i was up in the air as well as being on the ground trying to trying to take the glider apart and, and so on so it was a very uh very strenuous activity to to get the glider apart we had to manually push the glider probably 30 or 40 yards uh in the i keep calling it sand uh, the, the, luckily, there was actually, if, if you know of those uh, those automatic sprinkler systems you see in these big crop fields where yeah. they where they move, you know, they're like on a they're on a large wheeled you know mechanism, and they they might be 
several hundred yards long, but they actually, as they turn on the water, they start to move uh, and walk across the field, if you will. Um, luckily, where I came to rest, I was only about five feet from one of the the tire tracks of those sprinkler systems. So we were, you know, other, otherwise we would have had to have rolled the glider up and over the, I call it the hedgerows or the rows where they, they plant the crops. So we were able to, to, to push the glider along one of those tire tracks uh, over to the side of the field. And, and again, it was probably about 50 yards or it felt like it was at least 50 yards. Uh, and that's where they had, uh, they were able to bring the trailer in and, uh, it was just a long, tiring, you know, way to end the day, uh, taking the glider apart. I think we, it probably took us three hours from start to finish to finally get out of there and, and uh, back to the field that was just a few miles away. What happens in a contest if you land out and you have a couple of days left? How, how does that work? I thought, I just assumed it meant a zero score for the day. Um, but what actually happened is they give you the, they give you the distance scored so right up to the point where I, I landed, uh, I got points for that for that distance that day. I did not get any points for the speed portion. So the scoring is made up of uh, th- there's different ratios. I, let, let's just say it's 60-40 distance points and speed points. And, and those two scores together are, are what you get uh, scored for that day. Okay. So in that example, I, I left and we, we went out and had dinner that night and I just assumed I got a big zero for the day and was surprised when I looked online to find out I got a, a decent number of points because I'd flown quite a long distance that day. I just I just came up three miles short to the airport. Um, so it, it didn't, you know, it, obviously it, if, if you were seriously competing and hoping to get first place, uh, that was not going to help you <laughs> landing out. But it didn't it didn't have a huge impact on my score that day. So I, I still uh, I still felt very proud of the fact that I'd flown. I think I flew in excess of the the average you know the the average distance of those tasks because again I'd flown outside of one of the turn points quite a way just to get to that cloud street. So I was I was pretty very proud of of the distance I'd flown that day. Just I just ended a few miles short of the field. So you have two more days left. Do you do you do the two days? What happened? You could, yeah, you absolutely could. Um, to be honest with you, I was so tired. Uh, we, we didn't get back from getting the glider uh, out of the field. We didn't get back till, let's say, 8 p.m. that night. I honestly was just too tired the next day. Um, I, 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 I voluntarily voluntarily said, I want to be a ground crew today. I, did, I just didn't have the energy uh, to, to jump in the glider. It was another 100-degree day. It was extremely blue day. I remember. I don't think there were any clouds near uh, near the airport. And I said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, let my body tell me what's right." And I chose not to fly that day. The truth is, a lot of pilots, for for different reasons, did not fly that third day. Um, sky was very blue. It was extremely hot. Uh, I think a lot of them were just tired. Also, at that point. So uh, a much smaller number of gliders went out, and I I think there were actually a bunch of landouts that day. Um, again, because it was it was so blue, there just were no clouds in the area. Yeah, and you know, it's good to listen to yourself when yeah. it tells you, "Hey, I don't think I should fly today." You know, absolutely. That's a I tell my wife all the time. I'm I'm one of the safest pilots I know, and and maybe that maybe that means I'm too cautious. But my body was saying, "No, you you know, you can take a day off. This is just a contest. Uh, it's just for fun. You know, enjoy it. Don't don't push yourself so hard." And uh, and possibly, uh, you know, have, have a safety issue because of that. Exactly. And then the final day, uh, the, so I'm sorry. So now day four 
comes around and it's now the complete opposite of the previous days. A cold front was moving through. The, the clouds were much lower. Uh, I want to say they were probably at 4,000 feet maximum. There were, there were rain showers starting to, to pop up in, in different areas. Uh, there was a lot of question whether or not we would even have a race that day. So what the contest director did is launched this sport class first. And a lot of pilots chose not to fly that day, I think, because the weather just was not not very good. He launched the sport class that was in that that front group. And we basically were all just kind of sampling the weather. You know, were we able to stay up? You know, could we see further away? What did the weather look like? And so on. And we and it wasn't a great day, but it was definitely a, a, a flyable day. And they actually modified the task while we were in the air. I think it was going to be an 80 80-mile task, a much shorter task that day. And while we were flying, uh, they changed everything. They changed the start location. They changed the the uh, turn points that we're going to use, mainly to avoid the weather that was predicted. So uh, it went from an 80-mile task to much shorter. I think it was a 45 or 50-mile or task. And I was feeling comfortable when I when I left the start area. The sun was was trying to come out, and I thought it was going to be become a better day. And I started heading towards uh, the first turn point, which was not that far away, maybe 20 miles. And immediately, you know, to my left, I see a rain squall. To my right, I see I see some rain. And I really considered turning back. I was only about 10 miles from the airport, uh, from Cordial. And I really, I did start to turn back, uh, saying, you know, it's just not going to be a great day. You've, you've already had some great experiences here. Let's, let's call it a day. Uh, just then, uh, two other gliders got my attention. They were, they were, I was heading home. They were, they were heading out on, on course. And I said, well, let me follow them. If they're, you know, if they feel comfortable, I'll follow them for a little bit. And if it doesn't get any better, I'll, I'll, I'll make my way back. Made it to the first turn point. Things were pretty uneventful. There was, there was decent lift, but again, you, you weren't flying very high. 4,000 was a good altitude. That was plenty high. When I was going from the second thir- turn point to the third and it was it was pretty much a 90 degree turn point. And you make that turn, and all I saw was rain. To the left, to the right, there was just little. You know, the clouds were were starting to condense, and and uh, rain was starting to fall. So you really had to pick your way through the rain showers. Uh, you know, there was no lightning, but obviously you, you're not you're not going to fly very well if you're if you're flying in the rain. Um, and there were a few times I would be. I would be under a cloud thermaling. Everything was great. And all of a sudden you'd realize as you were going around 360 degrees, you'd realize you were flying in and out of rain uh, just within the thermal. It's like one side of it was raining and one side of it was, was sunny. Very, I've never flown like that before. And you wanted to get out of there as quick as you could. So luckily the, the thermals were strong, but there was rain everywhere, little pockets of rain all over the course. And then when I did get to the third and final turn point to head home, it, it wasn't the rain, but the sky got very overcast at that point. And uh, I, I did have final glide. I, I had adjusted my computer to put a larger margin uh, now so that I didn't make that mistake that I made earlier. But I knew, I, excuse me, I knew I had final glide, but it's a little intimidating that it was completely overcast. You know, you just feel nervous. You don't know what's in front of you if you're going to hit some sink and and so on. And, and as I was, I was coming home at best, that best uh, glide, I, I really was not pushing the speed at all. And, uh, I did, I did happen to actually run into another glider. He was off, uh, 
probably a mile to my to my left, and I just kind of made my way over toward him. Uh, I think it's just a psychological thing, but just the comfort of being up with another glider about your altitude, uh, heading home and and made it home, made it back to Cordell. Not a very fast race for anybody that day. I do remember after I landed, my uh, my friend uh, Bruce was on the ground. And he goes, you know, how was it? How'd you like it? And I, and I told him, I said, Bruce, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, to, <laughs> to I said, it just makes no sense. You know, I, I, I knew better. I probably should have just turned around when I had initially turned around. But I said, if, you know, if anybody else had told me the weather was going to be like that, I never would have uh, flown the task. But I was I was excited that I completed it. A lot of gliders, they were probably smarter than me. They, they, they just bailed out early on because the weather wasn't looking too good. Well, congratulations. Um, yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I have not, obviously, anywhere near doing a contest yet, but they do sound like a lot of fun. I am looking forward to that someday. Yo, I, everybody, you know, and, and people told us that, you, you know, just do it. Just get out there and do it. it it's an incredible experience. Don't go there thinking you're going to you're gonna be that one in a million that, that wins a contest the very first time, you know, they go. But it, it's such a great experience. You learn a lot from uh, the more senior guys that are that are there doing it there's a there's a briefing every morning uh the pilots meeting the three pilots the top three finishers from the previous day give a speech if you will they they kind of told you what they were thinking and how they you know how they flew the day and what they you know what they look for and what you know what's good and what's bad that's a lifetime of experience right there you know you'd hear people say some things and you're like, wow, you know, I never, I never would have thought about that. Uh, somebody, for example, somebody brought up that uh, you're generally trained to to fly over terrain that looks like it's going to generate lift, darker fields or you know areas that you know are going to generate lift for you. There in, in Georgia, the truth is a lot of those fields that you're looking at are are wet because they're irrigated. Uh, because this that time of the year, they're starting to grow these crops and they they really soak the ground. So over the open fields is not where you wanna you wanna be. You wanna be along a lot of the tree lines because those are actually absorbing all that heat throughout the day and they and they start to give it up uh, later in the afternoon. And I never I just I had never been you know conditioned to do that to think that I'm gonna fly over a, a forest and and that's gonna generate more lift than that that nice dark piece of ground there that looks like it's you know, it's soaking up all the sunshine. That kind of experience is invaluable. You know, you don't get that unless you're surrounded by people that have been flying for a long time and are willing to share that information. Absolutely. Anytime I can soak up information from guys that have been flying for a while, I yep. always try to do that. Yep, absolutely. Jim, thank you for sharing your experience flying a contest. Thank you. And it's, uh, it's been fun. For somebody that not only wants to be a better pilot, but also a safer pilot, would you have any advice for them? You, you said it a minute ago, listen to your body, you, you know, listen to your body. It tells you what you, what, you know, what you probably can and can't do. I take that a little step further going, listen, listen to yourself. I think a lot of times when uh, people get in trouble, they, they know they're getting into a, a bad situation. Um, maybe you're flying around your home field and, and you see that you're, you're getting a little low, but for example, you know, my example of, I, I thought I would just find some lift. Uh, out ahead and I, I went ahead and turned for home even though I knew that I didn't have uh, the altitude I needed it, there was a voice in my head telling me don't do that uh, I was only 10 miles to another to my landing point uh, I'm sorry to the previous turn point 
where I could have landed at a, at a paved runway. Somebody could have flown out there and got me. But I didn't listen to that little voice in my head that said, you know, hey, stop where you are. You know, at worst case, land land out at this airport and, and you know, be ready for the next day. Uh, I didn't listen to that voice. So the advice I would give is l- listen to your conscious. It, it's telling you a lot of times uh, if you think it's not a good decision, it's probably not a good decision. And, uh, you know, always remember it's, it's, a, it's a sport. Uh, it's not there to be, it doesn't have to be uh, any more dangerous than it is. And, and try and enjoy it and, and just be absolutely as safe as you can be. Absolutely. You know, there's always tomorrow to fly. Yep. You don't yep. have to get in the air if you don't feel like it's not a good time. That's right. That's right. Uh, one, one of the members at our club, and it, it still stands out in my mind, that concept of I'm, I'm just going to I'm going to skip this cloud. There was no lift here. So I'm going to go to the next cloud. There'll be some lift under that one or, you know, this next area. And he said it. He goes, hey, sometimes tomorrow never comes. You, you keep you keep skipping those clouds and pretty soon there's, there's no more clouds left and, and you can't get, you know, any higher and you have to land. So sometimes, you know, sometimes tomorrow never comes. You just got to you got to stop and be uh, be thoughtful, you know, take take what you have and try and work, uh, work with the conditions that you're in and, and always be safe. Don't it's, it's a sport. Don't don't try and do something that's going to endanger you or even the people on the ground. Uh, around you make it make it as fun and enjoyable as possible yeah so we can enjoy the next day of flying absolutely tell tell more stories the next day right jim thank you for taking your time i appreciate you being on the podcast it's been good talking to you thank you for doing this uh these podcasts i think are really valuable and a great you know a great source of experience for anybody that's that's listening to them so thank you Thank you for joining us for another great guest here on Soaring the Sky, and thank you for all your positive feedback you've been sending us from all over the globe. I do appreciate it. If you are a pilot and you'd like to share your story here on the podcast, feel free to get a hold of me. It's Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com. Love to hear from you. Love to talk to you. Get you on the podcast. If you want to catch up with us on social media, you can do that. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Both of those you can find us at Soaring the Sky Podcast. We also put some things on there about upcoming guests, so you get a little bit of sneak peek. And once again, if you want more information about soaring, a great place to go is ssa.org. We hope you join us again next time right here for another great guest on Soaring the Skies.